I've been thinking a lot about what's going to happen in about nine months' time. It'll be spring. Everything will seem a little brighter, a little greener. And in the wake of the Supreme Court decision canceling out the constitutional right to an abortion, there might be a lot more babies. This possibility was considered by the court. The justices even seemed to suggest a solution, adoption. In his final opinion, Justice Samuel Alito assured readers that a woman who puts her newborn up for adoption today has little reason to fear that the baby won't find a suitable home. During oral arguments, Justice Amy Coney Barrett seemed to imply that because all 50 states have safe haven laws, adoption might serve as a kind of substitute for abortion. I wanted a fact check on that. The safe haven laws, you know, it's good to have them, but very, very few people take advantage of them. Ann Fessler has made herself into an adoption expert. I should just interrupt and say safe haven laws, they allow a birth mother to surrender a child without any punishment, I guess, or any consequence, right? Right, right. She can take the child to a local, you know, fire station, you know, and drop it off. But it's very, very, very rarely used. Anne's expertise comes from trying very deeply to understand mothers who feel like they need to surrender their babies. She's interviewed dozens of women who did this before abortion was legal. They were often sent away to maternity homes to hide their pregnancies, and then they gave up their children entirely. Every single one of them felt it was the worst thing that ever happened to them. One woman told me about how she never slept through the night. She worried every single night about what was happening to her little girl and, you know, whether she was being taken care of. Some of these women suffered PTSD. Others suffered depression. But these women only knew all this in hindsight, of course. That's what worries Anne, that in the next few months, pregnant people are about to make decisions they won't fully grasp for years. The problem with all of this is a woman who is considering adoption does not have any kind of unbiased mentor walking her through the process or advocating on her behalf. The only people she will hear from are people who are connected to that adoption and who have a vested interest in that child being adopted. A financial interest, too. A financial interest and a moral interest. Do you think there's such a thing as a simple adoption or an easy adoption? Mm, easy adoption. Uh, I would say uh, no. <laughs> Any woman who's considering adoption is usually in some kind of a crisis situation. She has no idea how she will feel when that baby is born. So by the time the baby's born, and, you know, it's a living, breathing, crying, pooping human being that is half her, the loss of that baby is an enormous loss. Even if she feels adoption is the only answer for her, and that loss can stay with her for the rest of her life. Today on the show, looking ahead to how a post-Roe America will change what adoption looks like in this country by looking back at how it used to work. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. 
Stick around. If you clicked on the local news after the Supreme Court decision overturned Roe v. Wade, you could hear reporters grappling with what to say about adoption. Some adoption agencies, they seemed cautiously optimistic. Honestly, what we're hoping to see from the overturn is that more women will actually choose adoption. There are always families that are out there willing to adopt infants. Some adoptees seemed angry. The truth is, I had wished, and I still wish, that my mother had been given the ability to make the decision for herself. Anne Fessler saw this decision from a couple of perspectives. Did you always know you were adopted? I did. My uh, adoptive mother is also an adoptee, and her mother would never admit it to her. But she knew she had found a, her original adoption papers taped to the back of a painting at her aunt's house. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But her mother would never admit it to her. And on her deathbed, she wouldn't admit it to her. Because in those days, it was more, you know, shameful for a woman to not be able to produce children for her husband. Right. So the, the her mother had been my grandmother, who I never met, had been hiding the fact that her child was an adoptee. You're an artist. And eventually you started this project where you began interviewing women who had surrendered their children for adoption around the time you yourself were adopted. And you've said that that time was a perfect storm. It's the years after World War II, and it led to this unprecedented one and a half million surrenders, is how you put it, which is children placed for adoption. What made that perfect storm possible? Uh, there were a lot of factors. Certainly after World War II, you start with a baby boom generation. The baby boom generation was unique in our culture, and uh, the, the, the children of that generation uh, had a lot of independence. Uh, they felt very differently about the world than their parents' generation. And uh, there was more sexual activity among people who had no plans to marry. But maybe not as much contraception? Well, there wasn't. Uh, the only contraception uh, in that generation until the late 60s, the only contraception was a condom. You could, as a young woman, until 1972 and the Eisenstadt v. Baird Supreme Court decision, birth control was not available to single people throughout the country. This statute is purely and simply anti-contraceptive. Let me give you some of the patent absurdities. Eisenstadt v. Baird struck down a Massachusetts law that made it a felony to distribute contraception to unmarried people. The court called the law irrational for reasons laid out at oral argument. A married woman who's been separated from her husband for three or four years, she can go be prescribed and get a contraceptive for family planning purposes. Despite the fact she hadn't seen her husband for years, obviously for illicit purposes, uh, but the poor married woman doesn't have enough money to go to the doctor. She can't. A bride, a girl about to be married, she can't go to a gynecologist. So more sex, less birth control, or no birth control? Less birth control, no sex education. And then on the other side of things, you had 
families, after World War II, white families were gaining uh, social status, economic status, unlike before the war. There were all kinds of GI bills and government loan programs. And so people who may have before been in the agricultural or a working class moved up into solid middle class status. And the one thing that could knock you right out of the middle class was having a pregnant daughter. Uh, the family would have been looked at as having poor parenting skills and as an immoral family that allowed their daughter to get into that kind of situation. So it creates a real incentive to have that problem go away. Absolutely. So if I was a 16-year-old girl in the suburbs who found myself pregnant in this era, was it very likely that I'd just be kind of sent away and the people around me would be told, I don't know, she went to Europe or to visit an aunt or something? What would, what would, what would happen? <laughs> Precisely. First of all, it, until Title IX, which people think of as the you know, equalizing uh, sports for men and women in school. Title IX was huge for women in terms of pregnancy. Until Title IX, you were immediately expelled from school if you were even thought to be pregnant. Uh, you would be called down to the principal's office if there were rumors, and they would say, go home, you have to go to a doctor, you have to prove you're not pregnant. And if they could not prove it, they were kicked out of school. Whoa. Now, the boys were not kicked out of school, only the girls. So when Title IX came along, they could no longer kick girls out of school for being pregnant. And Title IX was, what, the 70s? It was 72. And that's when some of these numbers started turning around, this huge uh, bubble in adoptions that happened, you know, after the war, the climb, and then peaked in about 1970. And then it started turning around. Some of that was Title IX. Some of that was women being able to get access to birth control. Listening to you talk... I'm struck by what a different time it was, this time you reported on. Yes. Much less birth control, so much stigma around being pregnant, and stigma with real consequences, getting kicked out of school, losing social status, being kicked out of the middle class, essentially. Why do you think the stories of that era, or maybe how do you think the stories of that era, can inform how we think about what happens now, post-Roe? Well, I think the primary thing is that we know from hindsight now what the emotional consequences are of surrender. 31 of the 100 women I interviewed never had another child. They were so traumatized by this experience, and five of them had themselves sterilized. And they said it was because they'd had this experience and they just didn't want to be triggered, essentially? They were devastated by the loss. They weren't even really allowed to grieve. They were also told they'd forget, too, right? Yes, yes. And yes, they were told, that, you know, move on. You'll have other children. You'll have an opportunity to have other children. And uh, the problem is because they were told that they should move on and forget and that it would all be a distant memory. There would be no consequences. When they were grieving the loss of their child, when they could not forget, they thought something was wrong with them. One of the oral histories in your book, a woman you call Margaret, details how in the immediate aftermath of giving birth, she was very upset and reconsidering giving up her son for adoption. And she was told to write out what she could offer the baby in one column and what the adoptive parents could offer in the other. And it stood out to me in this moment because it made me think about the use of guilt 
to shape the choices women make about their pregnancies, which is something that's very much still happening today. You know, I think if you go to an abortion clinic, you'll see people pleading and, you know, see your child as a baby. And it's it's sort of the same levers being pulled on. You know, it's very manipulative. You have people who develop very sophisticated techniques to convince a young woman who is, you know, not as sophisticated about these things to surrender her child. You know, that's a very graphic thing as a visual artist, you know. I mean, I think about what that looks like to a young person, you know, where she said, you know, on one side of the page, she could think of all, she could picture in her mind all these things that they would have. But then she's comparing that to what she individually has to offer the child. And she says, and I only had love. After the break, how this history can inform our post-Roe reality. We can't know what kinds of choices women will make in this post-Roe era, whether they'll keep children that they otherwise may have had an abortion. Mm -hmm. We don't know if they'll give them up for adoption. I think one thing we do know, though, is that it's much more likely now that women will end up in so-called crisis pregnancy centers, these places that have been set up by religious groups to talk to women about pregnancy, convince them to continue pregnancies, and figure out how that works in their lives. Like right now in, in Texas, these kind of centers already outnumber abortion clinics three to one, and they're funded by the government. And it seems to me like those places, they're not the same as the maternity homes that you reported on, but they are they share an aesthetic almost. And I wonder mm-hmm. if that strikes you too. Well, yes. I mean, the centers exist to convince women to not have abortions. It's their sole purpose. And yes, in some states, the state government donates enormous amounts of money to these places. And a woman enters a a clinic like this, and she there's nothing there that indicates that they have any kind of religious affiliation or that they are not just a pregnancy testing place. And so she goes in. It might be the only place she has access to that she can get to in her state. And um, they encourage her to have an ultrasound. Sometimes they set her up with a family who can, you know, help her along the way. And then they connect to these uh, religious agencies that are in the position of adopting out that child. Wow, it sounds like a whole network. It is a network. It is absolutely is a network. At a center in the Dallas area, a volunteer told our producer abortions can cause infertility. Back in June, NBC News sent a couple of undercover producers to a crisis pregnancy center. They wanted to learn about the counseling they offer. When asked about the abortion pill, the volunteer said, my job is not to scare you. You never get over seeing that baby. She then pointed to a small plastic model like this saying, can you imagine one of these in your panties? I wonder if you can talk about modern day adoption a bit, because reading some of what you've written, you've pointed out that 
there's so much regulation of abortion, but very little regulation of adoption in similar ways. Can you tell me more about that? Well, I think one of the biggest things is that a minor in most states now cannot have an abortion without their parents knowing or a judge approving of that. But a minor can go all the way through pregnancy, give birth, and surrender her child without parental notification in most states. I think that's shocking. I mean, certainly going through pregnancy and giving birth is way more medically difficult and complicated and dangerous than having an abortion. It's also very strange to me that we've all come to accept that the agencies who are dealing with adoption, many of them are faith-based. Like, we've just sort of said, like, oh, yeah, that's normal. When I think about it, I think, like, oh, why, though? <laughs> why is that normal? And yeah. um, once I started to consider it, I I mm-hmm. just began questioning it in my mind. Like, why does it happen like this? It doesn't seem like the right way. We have separation of church and state. <laughs> yes. Well, you would you would think that this wouldn't be the case. But even in the era that I write about, all the big organizations that had maternity homes were faith-based. So you have the Florence Crittenden Home, the the Booth Homes run by the Salvation Army, and Catholic Charities. And those organizations kind of faded with time when there were not very many babies available for adoption, and other organizations filled those gaps. They filled the vacuum. So you have religious organizations, and then you have a lot of adoptions happening through just lawyers. So adoption has become privatized and it's it's underregulated. So you mean like there's just you get a guy? Yeah, exactly. You get a, a guy. broker. Yeah. Is this how it works in other places? <laughs> no, I haven't done a significant amount of research, but um, but I do know that in England, a woman who has a baby that she is considering surrendering for adoption cannot surrender that baby for six weeks. <gasps> Wow. After giving birth. Yes, after giving birth. In some states, it's as short as 24 hours. So if she does not make a move to revoke her consent in 24 hours, then that adoption is going to happen. And 24 hours, she could still be under the influence of the medication from, you know, from giving birth. And then in the end, she has very, very little time to change her mind. You said something really striking to my producer when she was getting ready to prep me for this segment. You said, if I had a daughter who was 12 years old, I'd put her on birth control right now because of the state of the country. And it struck me because I have a young daughter and I hadn't, I'm not there yet. I hadn't thought about that. It seems extreme, but it sounds like the trauma you've reported on deeply informs that point of view. Absolutely. First of all, do we really want, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old girls to go through pregnancy? You know, it's extremely hard on the body. It's a difficult process. And, you know, if I had a daughter that age, I, I certainly would not want her to go through pregnancy. And then I would not want her to surrender and live with that trauma the rest of her life of losing her first child. And this is based on what I learned from the women that I interviewed. And we have to also look at the fact that seven of the 100 women that I interviewed became pregnant as a result of rape. 
What would an ethical and affirming adoption process look like in this moment? Like, do you think it exists in a moment where there's not also a right to abortion? Uh, The changes that are necessary in adoption right now would take years to enact, but we should be moving in that direction. Like I said, women need an advocate. They need somebody to lay out everything in front of them in terms of what's available to them. They need to know their rights when they go through adoption. They need time after the baby's born to make a final decision. Pregnant women need medical care and unbiased and accurate information about their pregnancy from people who do not have a stake in the outcome, either moral or religious. It's a conflict of interest. And there's way too much money in adoption. It's ripe for corruption. You know, I think about my family, the family that adopted me. They were working class people. They would never be able to adopt now because adoption, you know, is forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars And so it's becoming a transfer of children from resourceless women to women with resources. Hmm. I don't have much room for optimism after talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, adoption will happen. Like I said, it just it needs radical change. We really need a movement in this country to reform adoption so that at least for those women who want to consider it and are fully informed, they are not taken advantage of in the process. Ann Fessler, I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you, Mary. Ann Fessler is the author of The Girls Who Went Away, the hidden history of women who surrendered children for adoption in the decades before Roe v. Wade. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Madeline Ducharme, Carmel Del Shad, and Mary Wilson. We're getting a ton of support right now from Jared Downing and Anna Rubinova. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. I will be back in this feed bright and early on Monday. Catch you then. <laughs>